We are in week 10 of uh, Gospel Family, and uh, Ephesians 5.25 is where we find ourselves tonight. And uh, why don't we stand and we will read uh, through verse 33. Ephesians 5.25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular So love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Reading a lot of different uh, resources today, came across uh, a book by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. And as I was reading, he says this, so what do you need to make marriage work? Don't we all want to know? You need to know the secret, the gospel, and how it gives you both the power and pattern for your marriage. On the one hand, the experience of marriage will unveil the beauty and depths of the gospel to you. It will drive you further into reliance on it. On the other hand, a greater understanding of the gospel will help you experience a deeper and deeper union with each other as your years go on. There, then, is the message of this book that through marriage, the mystery of the gospel is unveiled. Marriage is a major vehicle for the gospel's remaking of your heart from the inside out and your life from the ground up. So that's our prayer, that as we examine the gospel, we will have a reworking and a strengthening to our marriages. And as we examine marriage, we will have a greater understanding and appreciation and zeal for the good news of what Jesus has done. These two individuals, a man and a woman, It's kind of like Paul Harvey's rest of the story. Let's see if you can guess who it is. They had no ordinary marriage. Clive Staples Lewis, known to his friends and family as Jack, was a known bachelor who was a popular novelist, poet, academic, medievalist, literary critic, essayist, lay theologian, speaker, and Christian apologist from Belfast, Ireland. He married an American writer named Joy Davidman, who'd been divorced, had with her two young sons from the previous marriage. Joy was of Jewish descent, a former communist, 
and was 17 years younger than Clive. They were married, even though they had such radically different backgrounds, and even though no one anticipated their union. In uh, April of 1956, when Clive was 57 years old, this discovery of love to him was not just an intellectual thing, but he would discover love for joy as a real man, and it came along so tangibly, and he was confronted with the cost of how real love was as he helplessly stood by and watched his wife die of cancer after only four years of marriage. In the opening scene of the BBC production Shadowland, C.S. Lewis's voice is heard summarizing his feelings for his terminally ill wife by saying, Why am I so afraid? I never knew that I could hurt so much. Yet I love you, and all I want is to love you. These words came from this C.S. Lewis, a world-renowned scholar, what we would consider a first-class Christian thinker, and a 61-year-old man. These words of why do I hurt so much describe how marriage can, yes, hurt so much on so many levels. Tim Keller also went on to say the reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it's a reflection of the gospel, which is painful. It hurts, but it's so wonderful all at once. And so that's what we have here in Ephesians chapter 5, this love for Jesus and for his church that is so painful and so wonderful. There is such sacrifice and such surrender in Jesus being displayed in Ephesians chapter 5. We see the cost and the pain that is so awesome and so terrifying. When God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. Behold, I tell you a mystery that I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Paul is basically turning to each one of us and saying, I want you to study the gospel. I want you to gaze at the gospel, and then I want you to copy what you see. I want you to look at Jesus. I want you to look at him in his glory. I want you to see him taking on flesh. I want you to, to see him walking as a man for 33 years in a perfect life. And then I want you to see him willingly laying down his life, being betrayed by the sons of men, some of them being his best friends. I want you to see his death and how brutal it was how torturous it was, how excruciating, which is literally Latin X, out of, cruciate the cross, out of the cross. This great love was displayed for us. But I also want you to see the resurrection. And I want you to see the glory. I want you to see the Son at the right hand of the Father. And for every one of us, it'll change our view of marriage. For some of you, that are single young men that are getting ready to be married, or some of you that aren't so young, that have the desire to be married again. We shouldn't count on 
our eyes to guide us and finding the next beautiful woman that comes across our path that makes our heart beat fast. Nor should we wait if you're really young for those hormonal changes to occur that would cause you to perhaps be ready to procreate. But really, as we've been looking at the husband's definition of love given to us by Jesus, what we should really ask ourselves as husbands and as you guys that aren't married yet, can I ever love another person like Jesus? That's what you need to ask, single guys. That's you, Scott. That's you, Nathan. Don's not here tonight, right? So <laughs> I was going to pick on him, but he's not here. That's probably good. <laughs> it's a huge task to gaze at the gospel and then emulate what we see, to copy what we see. The writer of the popular playground song got it right when whoever it was says, first comes love. Then comes marriage. Then comes the baby in the baby carriage. Grace, love first. Then marriage. Then the baby. Okay, way later. Okay, just in case your mom and dad haven't had that talk with you. Richard Halverson, which is uh, uh, Gail's cousin. Um, no, Ron's cousin. Richard Halverson, who was uh, one of the chaplains for the United States Senate, among other things said 69 years of life and 42 of marriage have brought with it a deep settling conviction in the economy of God. 100% of the responsibility for sustaining a marriage belongs to the husband. No failure or sin on the part of the wife is his justification to forsake her. A husband cannot force his wife to receive his love or reciprocate it, but he must love her. How do we do that? We do that, and I'm so glad, Nate, that you had the lights put in the back of the cross again. <laughs> we can do that for our wives by hanging out in the atmosphere of the glowing cross by enjoying and immersing ourselves and plunging ourselves into the atonement, into the blood of Jesus, into the cost that he paid, by reflecting in the beauty of the cross, we will be able to love our wives, husband, when there is not much to love. And when there's no reciprocal love coming back to us. I got lucky today and I found an old Spurgeon sermon. From Ephesians chapter 5. Sometimes they're hard to find and it really blessed me as I read through it. And he said, the Lord Jesus loves his church unselfishly. That is to say he never loved her for what she has but what she is. No, I must go further than that and say that he loved her not so much for what she is, but what he makes her as the object of his love. He loves her, not for what comes to him from her or with her, but for what he's able to bestow Upon her. I'm going to say that again. 
He loves her not for what she is, but what he makes her as the object of his love, what he's able to bestow upon her. His is the strongest love that ever was, for he has loved unseemingliness till he has changed it into beauty. He has loved the sinner till he's made him a saint. He has loved the foul and filthy till he's washed them with water by the word of God and presented them to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Husbands, what a task we have for our wives to love her when she's unlovely, to love her in her filth, to love her in her rebellion, to love her in her lack of respect and submission, to love her despite what she can bring to the table, but to love her with what we can make her with the gospel as spiritual leaders who are copying Jesus the true groom. A man once heard a famous violinist, uh, Yehudi Menuhin, who's been known to be the greatest violinist of the 20th century. And this man heard him play beautiful music. And after the concert, he tracked down Menuhin down, uh, and said, I would give my life to play like that. Where Yehudi re replied, I have given my life to play like this. When we read Ephesians chapter 5 or we read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, and we see our groom in action, men, we would say, man, I'd give my life to be able to love like that. And Jesus says, I have given my life to love like that. So what do we do? We come to the cross. We come and we bask in the glory of the cross where the groom laid down his life for the bride. And before we ever get to Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands, or 25, husbands love your wives, we've learned to go where? Chapter 5, verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. As we hang out at the cross, as we ponder the cross, as we read the gospel and then read, the, why is there four gospels? Then you read the next one. <laughs> then you read the next one. Then you read the next one. Then you go back and then you read that again. You go again. You go get, you just bask in the gospels. And you receive the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We look at him, Jesus, dis whoa, I don't know what that was. It was like the glory of God. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for totally confirming what I've been saying. Oh. Jesus displayed the surrender of everything for his eternal bride. In this sermon, Spurgeon went on to say, this love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not in heaven itself. Husbands, you want to be good wife lovers? Then you examine the greatest thing under heaven, if not in heaven itself. You examine the love of Christ. And when you're done with that, you examine it again. We did a definition for submission in weeks past. And now we do the definition for uh, husband-like love. 
Christian husband love. And then let me define it for you. Love on the part of a Christian husband is defined as his unceasing commitment to act in the highest good of his wife. I'll say it again because I'm dense. <laughs> love on the part of a Christian husband is defined as his unceasing commitment to act in the highest good of his wife. And last week we saw that verse 22, or verse 24, a wife's submission is to be romanced by the husband's love that we read about in 25 through 33. Jesus romanced the church into submission. We looked at that in depth. For those of you that are into mathematics, like my wife, an accountant major, <laughs> you know that uh, you need to figure out what X is to be able to solve an algebraic formula. Well, we have X quantified for us to figure out the formula for love and to figure out the answer because Jesus shows us that he is X. He is the answer to love. He is the fulfillment and everything in between. The, the question, the problem, the fulfillment, he lays it all out by living it for us. As you see there in verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for. Underline and circle uh, that word as because that little word as shows us comparison and cause. It's a pretty powerful word because it brings the summary of what love is to us. Instead of defining love right now, let's give us ourselves a description of love. Love on the part of a Christian husband is described by or as the kind of love Jesus displayed for the church. It can be easily overlooked by us as we read husbands, love your wives. Now look at that word love. It is in present tense as you read it. And in the Greek, when something is in present tense like this word love, it stresses action that is continuous and ongoing and has a long duration. So when Paul says husbands, love your wives, he's saying, keep going. Keep going. Be the little engine that could, <laughs> you know. Keep going. There's duration to a husband's love just as Christ loved the church. The word loved in Christ's uh, context there is past tense or the aorist tense. And in Greeks, it displays a snapshot action. Jesus did it. Boom. Look at the cross. He loved the church. Husbands, keep loving your wives continually, forever, till death do you part. Just as Christ, in a moment in history, showed us his love in snapshot action. Jesus loves the church, present tense, in Revelation chapter 5, the saints cry out to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We know that nothing will be able to separate us from that love. And so cool to see how the Holy Spirit leads the worship team so often in the songs they pick because we sang out 
Romans 8, 38 through 39, that I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come uh, nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from this love in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of our groom. And so as Kevin DeYoung, someone that we've come to love as pastors here at the church uh, from the Gospel Coalition blog, he says, Christian husbands, you don't have the freedom to fall out of love with your wife. So many have that excuse. I just fell out of love with her. And what is the primary reason for this? Well, we often make the mistake of talking about Christ's relationship with the church as comparable to our marriage relationships. But that's not what Paul says in Ephesians 5, DeYoung says. He says that Christ's relationship with the church is the substance of our marriage relationship. And we are just a reflection of that Therefore, our marriages either rightly or poorly reflect the husband, or excuse me, rightly reflect the relationship between the Christ and the church. This means that for the Christian husband, he knows that he cannot and will not fall out of love with his wife because that would speak falsely about his Savior. He knows that within his marriage, there is an even higher calling in loving his wife, and that is the glory of God. We've learned that. What is the chief aim of our marriages? The glory of God. Not our feelings, not fulfilling our wildest dreams and fantasies, not making a name and a status for ourselves, but the glory of God. The glory of God is at stake in the love and in the continuation love within our marriage. In Savage's book, No Ordinary Marriage, a Christian husband should draw his inspiration from the exceptional love of Christ. There will never be sufficient reason for Christ to abandon his bride, the church, which bears his name. Paul is speaking to men who notoriously are slow to connect the dots. And I'm one of those guys, literally, I'm horrible at connect the dots. But as Artaxerxes says, to be as obvious as possible in his command to love, he takes this fast, limitless, eternal perfection of Jesus Christ in all of its inexhaustibility, and he summarizes it in one single historical moment. He singles out and he targets on this most tangible, revealing expression of the love of Jesus to his bride, and he thrusts it before us as an illustration, as a portrait, as a painting of what love should look like, and he says, copy this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Love your wife unceasingly. And Paul is very pastoral in this book. He doesn't leave us to connect the dots on our own. He connects it for us. As you read five through, uh, 25 through 33, like we did, he basically says, husbands, love your wives. Now let me get specific and connect the dot. Like Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. 
a couple facets of this love so that we can kind of bring in this love and all of its beauty tonight. First of all, he has loved the bride. He's loved the church with a self-giving love. As you read there, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her and gave himself up for her. For God so loved the world that God gave his only son. And we know that, but it's also interesting to read it from the perspective of that son. And of course, he's the one that quoted that in John 3.16. But as you read in Hebrews 10.7, that I said, behold, I've come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus came, willingly came, and became flesh to fulfill the volume of the book, to do the will of the Lord, to die for sinners, to die for the bride. He was self-initiating, and we're going to look at that a lot next week. He was self-giving, and in that he brought uh, just total pleasure to the Father. So cool to uh, just know the worship songs that were chosen, because it's just totally the Lord. Because I was reading in John chapter 10, verse 17 through 19, where Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my Father. Jesus wasn't pressured or manipulated into coming and laying his life down. He voluntarily came. And sometimes theologians will call that moment at the cross the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. But it's actually there at the cross that you see Jesus not passive, but actually very, very active in laying down his life. No one takes it from me but I lay it down myself. Husbands, are you getting this for your wives? No one makes me lay my life down for my wife. I've seen Jesus do it, and I'm compelled to follow in suit. I'm compelled to lay my life down for my bride. And so we see he loves with a self-giving love, and he also loves with a self-initiating love. In John 15, 13, you guys know it. You don't even need to turn there. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Hopefully your wife is your friend. <laughs> Laying your life down for your wife. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We have the, the portrait of love in Jesus laying down his life. That's how we know love. That is it. And because of that, we ought to lay down our lives and have sacri sacrificial life for our brethren and sistren. And hopefully your wife is a sistren. <laughs> Ephesians 5.2, walk in love. That's the same chapter we've been in, so maybe you haven't flipped around at all, and you can just stay there in Ephesians 5 and go down to verse 2. Walk in love 
as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. The sign of God's love, the demonstration of God's love, the display to his bride of his graphic, gracious, affectionate love is there at the cross. In just teaching Romans and being in chapter 5, just one of my favorite verses is that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So how, men, can you take that picture of love for his bride and make it applicable for us in our marriages? Herein is love towards your wife. Here is how you demonstrate love for your wife. And that even if your wife is a sinner or is sinning against you or is unlovely or is foul or is a reproach, just like Jesus, you lay down your life for her. We admit that we're preoccupied with the cross here. We love to talk about the cross. We love to reference the cross. The cross comes up in nearly every conversation because it reminds us of how much he loves us. It's the demonstration. It's the reminder. You start getting bummed and depressed and does God really love me? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. You're a person that struggles with depression? Look at the cross. There's joy. There's severity. There's goodness and kindness of God at the cross. There's truth and correction at the cross. It's the definition of love. And people that are immature in their Christianity, they try to define love on other terms. The love of God on other terms. And we've heard it, I've heard it, you've heard it. You know, the folks that, oh, I had a dream about the love of God. I couldn't figure out the love of God. I couldn't comprehend the love of God. And finally, he gave me a dream. He was a giant teddy bear that I'd won at the carnival. And this teddy bear just wrapped his arms around me. And therein, I found the love of God. Or, you know, some of us, we've been saved out of a, a horrible car accident or from a cancer or from something. And that's how I know God loves me. Guys, you don't need to go there. You don't have to go that far. Just look at the cross. Amen. Therein is love. And the Bible is very consistent on defining love and the love of God there at the cross. The cross of Christ is the ground on which the church stands, the source from which her life flows, the instrument by which her status as Christ's beloved is demonstrated, an unknown author wrote. And so for you guys that go to Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you can be confident that no matter what passage we're in or what uh, topic we're teaching on, we're going to be coming back to the cross we talk about it a lot in family, and it's probably not what you expected. Talk about family, we talk about the cross. We're going to talk about money and tithing, we're going to talk about the cross. And you know what Paul does too in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We talk about sex in our relationships, we're going to talk about the cross. No matter what it is, we're going to talk about the cross. The cross is that ground on which the church stands 
forgive me for referring to so many different people, but I'm just like a sponge that's been soaking up in my studies, and I just come and, and vomit it out on you. I'm sorry. But Charles Spurgeon again said, a brother minister said to me the other day when we were talking to one another about what the gospel has done for men, did you ever think what a wonderful thing the gospel is? That it has made possible such happiness as you and I enjoy in our domestic relationships? And of course, I heartily responded to that remark. For if there is anything that is a miniature picture of heaven upon earth, it is a pair of Christians happily united, whose children grow up in the fear of the Lord and render to them increased comfort and joy every day. Oh, how much some of us owe to the gospel for the happiness of our homes. You might say, hey, Jesus isn't the only one who's died and sacrificed his life for our comfort, for our good, for our well-being. And it's true that friends have laid their lives down for us and soldiers have laid their lives down for us and parents have, if not laid down their lives and certainly laid down every other aspect of their life and given everything that they had for us. And those sacrifices are genuinely great. But when we come to the cross, there's a few things that make his sacrifice all that much more precious and set it apart from the other sacrifices. And number one tonight, you want to look at the infinite value of the one who made the sacrifice. All these other sacrifices were finite. Jesus' sacrifice, infinite. <laughs> infinite. He has such value. He was fully man, not superman, fully man, and fully God. Crazy mystery, the hypostatic union. It's great theology to study that the one who hung the stars in the heaven, by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created, and there was nothing that was made that he didn't make, and yet he also is a man that was born in a cave that was turned into a stable, totally not a nice barn that we might be thinking. Fully God, yet fully man. As some have called this hypostatic union, the condescension of infinite proportions. The coming down of infinite proportions. And funny, after I was studying that, that men call that, the condescension, the coming down of infinite proportions, reading in that Spurgeon sermon, he says, in boundless condescension, he deigns or does something that we consider to be below his dignity to occupy the same kind of place in reference to his church, which he calls his bride. He himself being the bridegroom who's soon to come. And so the infinite value of the one who made the sacrifice, God in the flesh, slaughtered for the sins of men, slaughtered for his bride. What else sets his sacrifice apart from others? Secondly here, the nature of the sufferings that he's endured for his bride. You know, we, we've got the passion of the Christ nowadays that you watch with a cautious heart that wouldn't hopefully border onto idolatry. <laughs> I'm worshiping Jim Caviezel or whatever his name is, you know, and then I'm watching him over here on, you know, Flashpoint or whatever. Yeah, it's like, okay, that guy's not Jesus. You got to be careful with that. 
And interesting in uh, reading and immersing myself in Ben-Hur this last year, uh, special connections to the author through family history, long story, but finally got to watch the movie this weekend. So I'm watching Ben-Hur, enjoying the story of Judah, son of Hur, and how he's slowly figuring out that the Messiah isn't just setting up a kingdom on earth, but a kingdom spiritual. And as he's coming to know this Jesus of Nazareth and watching him and observing him and you know, getting his sword ready to lead the rebellion with him, he then watches Jesus die on the cross. And man, watching Ben-Hur disc two brought me to a point that place that the passion of the Christ didn't. And I didn't show Lindsay, but I was in tears as this 1958 production of the crucifixion scene happened right in front of my eyes. As the blood poured down from the cross and the rainwater washed it down into the valley of the lepers. You know, that was such a powerful portrayal because you saw the sights of the cross. And you heard the sounds of the cross. And you all but smelled the smells of Golgotha. And no doubt they were terrible. They're practically still terrible to this day. But I can so quickly become preoccupied with the external horrific scene of the cross. And doing a big study like I've done on how much the patibulum weighed that Jesus carried up, and then what? how big the nails were that went in. And that is all bad, and that is all horrible. But you want to know what by far is the most horrible and severe part of the cross? It is when the sun cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How deep is the cost that this groom paid for his bride? How great is the sacrifice? Well, it brought about the abandonment of God against his own son. As we sing, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. The father turns his face away. What did he endure for his bride? The abandonment of God. The ultimate judgment. The father turning his back on the son. Forsaking the son because of not the son's sins, but mankind's sins. And that's what the eternal experience in hell is going to be. Far worse than weeping, gnashing of teeth. And anything else that's described is that eternal separation from God for all eternity. And so we have here this infinite sacrifice that was made and was driven by an immeasurable love. I know what you're thinking, and maybe even some of you that are older, (laughs) that think your time isn't have that much left where you wouldn't have to perhaps lay down your life for your wife. Things are looking pretty good in Obama America or whatever, you know. He's keeping us pretty safe. I might make it to the end without having to sacrifice my life for my bride or for anybody else. But you know what the truth is? 
every day, every hour, every minute, every second, the opportunity is there. And the occasion begs it that you would sacrifice your life for your bride. Every time her greatest good requires the expression of self-denial on your part, you're laying down your life for your bride. Anybody had one of those opportunities lately? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've been looking for them. I've been begging for them. And I'm not joking. I'm, I'm not being facetious. You know, Rich and I were talking on the way back from Portland yesterday. I'm like, Rich, I want God to show me more ways that I can actually lay my life down for my bride. You know, I kind of know the like, oh, do the dishes for, you know, make sure she's like not doing the dishes all the time. And I'll lay my life down this time, honey, you know, and, and I'll take the garbage out. It is Monday night and oh, just lay in my life. No, Lord, show me like the trillion opportunities throughout the day to seek her good and to lay my life down. Husbands, we should be praying for death to self opportunities. Tim Savage wrote, when the first pair consumed the forbidden fruit, they were drawn into a cauldron of inner gender conflict. The man began to use the woman and the woman sought to master the man. This clash has poisoned every marriage ever since and has undermined societies founded on the unions of men and women but in the death of Jesus Christ, the self-centeredness of both genders is dealt a mortal blow. Praise God. In the death of Jesus Christ, the self-centeredness of the individuals or of the genders is dealt a mortal blow. Then in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new self-emptying person is miraculously born in everyone in whom Christ dwells, this new person is the hope of marriage. In husbands, it's a person who no longer seeks to use his wife, but to love her by laying down his life and picking up hers. By laying down his life and picking up hers. In wives, it's a person who no longer seeks to master her husband, but proactively works to serve him at his point of need. The two partners are the exact opposites of their primordial selves, and in them, the bitter consequences of the fall are reversed. Marriages become populated by mutual, self-giving partners. They do, that is, if both husband and wife are in Christ. If they've both received by faith the oracle of new birth, which Jesus died and rose to provide. Have you had that happen to you? Have you been born again? Have you been crucified with Christ and yet you live? Where there in your crucifixion with Christ, your selfish self is dealt a fatal blow? But the good news of the gospel is it doesn't stay there. A new you rises because Jesus rose. He gives you eternal life. And in the present, he gives you strength to live for today and obey his commandments. Have you been born again and received the indwelling spirit? 
so that this isn't just talk and a bunch of stuff that you can never do, but so that it's the oracles of God that produce what he's always designed for mankind and the power for you to accomplish it. Love your wife as born-again Christians by laying down your life for her and picking up hers. Is your kid crying at night? Who gets up to get it? Time to go to work? Who drives the nicer vehicle? Do we hang out with friends tonight or do we stay at home because that's her desire? Who cleans the house? Who cleans the mess? Who scrubs the crayon off the wall? Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards her. Colossians 3.19 tells us. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh toward her, another translation puts it. There's not the slightest hint of bitterness or harshness in true love. You got to know that as I teach this, my wife's in the back row. She knows that I fail at this. She knows that I need the Holy Spirit. Man, I am just bringing the word and I cry out with you guys. Fill us, Lord. I want more, more, more of you so that I can look more, more, more like you. Not the slightest hint of bitterness in true love. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Each of these dims the radiance of the wife, harshness, bitterness, criticism. But love that's been patterned after Christ is a love that adopts the wife's life as though it were its own and makes whatever sacrifices that are necessary to promote her best interests. This will cause the marital union to explode with the glory of God. And what do we want most in our marriages? We want our unions to explode with the glory of God. Time to speed things up a little bit. Marital love is like death. And that's not a joke. Marital love requires all of you. It demands all of you. It lays claim to everything that you are. And just when we men have a victorious moment and it just seems like we've shoved a stake of silver into the vampire of self's heart. It is silver, right? Sorry, I'm not into the fantasy books. Just when we've shoved that stake in there and we've killed self, an hour or two later, it revives again to suck the living life out of us. That's why we need to walk in the spirit and we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We'll mortify and slaughter those deeds of the flesh. This sacrifice, sacrificial love of a husband to a wife, it's more than just a simple willingness for a husband to put his life at risk. Old story, you know, a few years ago of a, of a man and, a, and, his, and his wife in the Colorado Rockies when a grizzly bear attacked as they were camping. And, you know, the, the grizzly is mauling the wife. 
And the husband jumps in and grabs the grizzly bear's beard and spins it around and takes this wrath of the grizzly upon himself so that he died of his wounds a little while later. But the wife was able to hobble out of the forest uh, to relative safety once again. And that is all great, but that is nothing compared to the type of love that we are called to as husbands. It's even greater than a once putting your life on the line. It's a living our life. It's our lifestyle day by day and moment by moment. Savage saying, yet the love of a Christian husband ought to be characterized by an even greater degree of sacrifice, more than a life given in death, but a life given in life. Loving husbands. Love is not surrendering to your wife in a one moment romantic blaze of glory with both barrels firing. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that's been given by Jesus. That might mean that for you, you'll need to say no to a promotion at your job for the betterment of your wife. It might mean that you'll need to say no to a recreational activity or hobby for your wife's greater good. It might mean saying no to this expanded cable package that's been offered, an ESPN, where you know you're going to be spending all of your time for your wife's greater good. It might be saying no. It might be saying yes. It might mean asking permission. It might mean getting her favor, getting her inputs on the vehicle bought or the dog brought home. We've all experienced it, right? Our desert is, I've learned, love of self dies hard. Do you love your wife like this? Does Rory love his wife like this? This enormous value of his love is defined by the value of his person and the nature of his suffering. You guys ready to close? Worship team, come on up. We're going to continue for the husbands for next week. And this is the best I've got planned. Uh, got husbands next week, parents the week after, and... Uh, that's all I've got planned right now. It's looking like 1st of October, home group starting up. But uh, we've got to set it in stone. Let's come to the cross. Let's come to the cross and, and in prayer, just allow the Lord to shape us and transform us by what he's already done and the power that he provides for us. You can set your things aside. Let's pray. What an example we have in you, Lord. And we just thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you for the, the gospel, that it is the power of God unto salvation. And that's not a, a one-moment thing, speaking of justification. That's the, the Christian life. Being saved, Lord. Being delivered out of sinful situations, wrathful arguments. The gospel is good news for the hurting home. I'm just thankful, Lord, and just the change that has been happening in me, it's to your glory, God.
in those times where you've taken me from moments of frustration and you've brought me to the cross and you've showed me my sin and you've showed me your great love, your great patience. Work that in us, Lord. All the love that we see in this world and the heroism of the soldiers and the firemen on 9-11 and the just the policemen and all of that, Lord, the, the friend that gave a kidney and the the husband that, that sheltered his wife during the tornado and was killed and just these heroes that we hear of or read of and Lord, they're just glimmers of the great hero, the great lover, the great groom. We thank you for your infinite value. And yet, as Philippians 2 says, you didn't care that you were equal with God and that you were God, but you came and you laid your life down and suffered a death, the death of the cross. You esteemed others and their needs as greater than your own. And Lord, may we as husbands follow in suit. Pour out your spirit on us, Lord, that song that Rich wrote, Lord, it's the cry of our heart. We want more, more, more of you. We come to you with burdens too hard to bear. We live in a, in a culture that the marriage burden is too hard to bear. And Lord, would you just bear it for us, Lord? Bring about redemption in the marriages of our church and in our culture, our community, God. In the relationships that we have with people, we know they're hurting, their homes hurting. The people here tonight, just hurting homes. No conversation taking place. <clears throat> no initiation of love on the parts of husbands, Lord. <coughs> Do a work that could only be attributed to your spirit. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.